Lord had delivered you. I want you to think back just for a second and think about a time when you perceived the Lord's intervention in your own circumstances, when you know that it had to have been the Lord who came to your rescue because the details of that experience were really unexplainable apart from the Lord and his kindness coming to you and rescuing you at the right time. I think that probably uh, many of us uh, in the room can recall experiences or think back to times in our lives uh, when, when we, we, we perceive the Lord's intervention in our own life. I can remember uh, a lot of times uh, in my own life as I looked back, uh, really the last couple weeks in preaching the Psalms, there's a lot of call back to remembrance. And so I sat down with a pen and some paper uh, and because just sitting and thinking about it, I was having a hard time, uh, I'm kind of scatterbrained sometimes, and so to like just sit and try to think about something is pretty challenging if I don't have something tangible to write out. Uh, so I got a piece of paper and I started to write down, uh, thinking back even to things in my childhood uh, of the Lord's faithfulness, and I was just blown away. I was blown away, one, at how faithful and how many times the Lord had consistently delivered me and rescued me and saved me. I was more astounded by how none of those things, or very few of those things, shape the way I view my current circumstances. I want you to think, as you, as you think about, and even one of the questions uh, in, in your bulletin for discussion the first question encourages you this week to take some time apart and write down, really write down the ways that the Lord has been faithful. The easiest way to do it is start with what's most current, and I think you'll just be shocked and blown away as it just continues to unroll, and you kind of can see it further and further back. As you, if you start in the most immediate circumstance, it, it, you'll begin to see patterns and traces uh, and, and, and it was overwhelming, I mean, to the point of, um, I mean, tears, just weeping, uh, and just overwhelmed uh, at, at, at the Lord's goodness and his deliverance uh, for me. And so I want you to think about not just about how he's done those things or how he has been faithful or delivered you in your own life, but I want you to think and ask yourself, how do you intentionally remember those things? Not just that he's done it, but how do, you, how do these things come up? How do you take time? Do you create time and create a space to intentionally remember these things? How do you dwell on these things? Do they feed your faith? Do they inform your trust? Because that's what they're intended to do, and that's what this psalm is really about. Because you see, David wrote this psalm in a context where, the God, where God had delivered the people of Israel in a mighty and an evident way. Um, there's some debate about uh, the context for it, uh, but he had delivered his people, and we'll go to it in a minute, it's in uh, Samuel, but uh, we'll go, uh, he delivered his people in a mighty and evident way, and David is concerned that the people of God, the people of Israel, would mistake God's deliverance and credit their victory to their own strength, or their own will, or their own craftiness, or their ability to get things done. So in this psalm, in this song really, because it's a song meant to be sung corporately, David aims to point the people of God to the fact that the Lord is their sole deliverer, that the Lord is the only one who has delivered them. 
And he wants that their awareness of God's intervention in these circumstances to stir up gratitude in their hearts. Because the movement to gratitude in their hearts creates or moves the people to a heart of worship, and worship changes us. He wants the awareness of the greatness of the danger that they were in to teach them not to trust in their own ability and their own self, but to trust in the Lord. And then he wants in all future circumstances, all occasions in the future in which they become threatened or discouraged, he wants to teach them because of the way that the Lord has delivered them so evidently and mightily in the past to trust in the Lord in that moment as well. So if you look back at the text, it's Psalm 124. If you look at verses 1 and 2, you're going to see that the psalmist specifically identifies Israel's deliverer. And then verses 3 to 7, he magnifies the danger that Israel was actually in. And then in verse 8, he declares the deliverer of Israel. So in verses 1 and 2, David is going to make it clear that the Lord is our only hope. Like I said, the psalm was a psalm that was meant to be sung aloud, and so you have a cantor or a presenter uh, who would say this first line, right? If, is, if it had not been for the Lord who was on our side, and then he says, let Israel now say, or in other words, Israel, sing with me, sing with me. If it had not been the Lord who was on our side when the people, when those people rose up against us, we would have been undone. Like I said, uh, there's some debate about the context of this, but, but I think the best case, it seems like David is referring back to the book of 2 Samuel uh, when something had happened. You know, if, if you know much about Israel's history, you know that Saul was the king, right? He was the, the people of God, the people of Israel wanted a king. They begged for a king because the other nations had a king. And so God gave them a king, and this king was Saul. Uh, and if you follow the story, you know some stuff happened with Saul and in Saul's heart. Um, and, and in 2 Samuel 5, Saul is now dead, and the army of Israel has been conquered by the Philistines. In 2 Samuel 5, I mean, you, you know that Israel was always being attacked by uh, its enemies and, and being, you know, attempted to be overrun, and the Lord has a history of, of faithfulness and deliverance. But in this context specifically in 2 Samuel 5, the Philistines have conquered Saul and his army. And if you know the rest of the story, you know that David is down in uh, Hebron and David, uh, Saul is dead, the army's done, uh, and the people of God begin to rally around David. They begin to rally around David and he is crowned king uh, 2 Samuel is really uh, good. 2 Samuel 5 is really good. I encourage you to read really 5 to 7 to really get the picture of this uh, for this week. It would be really helpful. Uh, but the people of God are rallying around David after the army of Israel has been defeated, after the king is dead. They rally around, and the Philistines, uh, they had thought that they had dealt the death blow uh, to Israel's army. You know, the king is dead, the army is dead, but they hear word that Israel is beginning to rally around this guy, David, who has now been crowned king. And so they assemble an army, they go to their neighbors, they go to the people who are around them to put together this army who will end Israel once and for all. It's kind of like, it reminds me of, if you've seen the Lord of the Rings, uh, the movie, or you've hopefully read the book, 
but if, if you've seen the movie, you know there's a, a, a place when Theoden, king of Rohan, asked Aragorn, how many soldiers have come against us from Isengard? And he says, ten thousands. And then Aragorn says, this army was bred with a single purpose, to bring an end to the world of men. And this is the, exactly what the Philistines are in, attempting to do with Israel. They have assembled an army, and they are coming in to destroy and try to remove Israel from the earth. If you know 2 Samuel 5, you know that David consults the Lord as, as, the, as, Israel's, I mean, as the Philistine army comes. They come and they cover the field in front of the city. Um, they are, Israel is vastly... Uh, outnumbered, and you know that David absolutely annihilates the Philistine army. Against all odds, David and the army annihilate the Philistines. And because uh, th this, this was actually a pretty unreal thing, uh, it was so unreal that if you, if you look back just a couple of verses before, David and his army had, uh, there was word that he was going to go in and capture another city. And the people of this city literally said, we are not worried about David and the army of Israel attacking us. The lame and the blind could defend this city against how weak Israel's army is right now. I mean, do you get that? I mean, if you were going to attack a city and whoever was over that city said to, said, said to their people, we are not worried. Our blind and crippled people could defend the city against David and his army. That, that's how weak it was. And because the, the victory was so incredible that the Lord ended up giving to David, because it was so unsuspected and unreal and unbelievable, the people were tempted to credit David and the greatness of the army for the success. But, but that, that doesn't make sense. There's no way. They were outnumbered. They, the best of their army had been depleted. Their king, who had led them time and time into battle, is dead. And David is going to make sure in this context, he is going to be saying through this psalm and by this psalm, no, 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 Israel, you don't understand the danger that you are in. You don't understand the odds that were against us. You don't understand who your help really comes from. He goes on and explains this psalm, the purpose, in the, in the, even in the first verse, or the first two verses, he is saying, your help, Israel, did not come from me. It didn't come from the armies. Our help came from the Lord. He is your deliverer. He, had he not been on our side when the Philistines rose up against us, we would have been undone. He goes on to magnify the danger in verses 3 to 7, if you want to look back down uh, at verses 3 to 7. Again, because the people of God were tempted uh, to downplay the danger because of how great the victory was, he is going to use these verses to magnify the realness uh, and the intensity of, of the danger uh, that was ahead of uh, the, these guys. And you, you think at first that maybe the logic doesn't really work. You're like, you know, why would somebody downplay danger because of how great a victory is? But, I mean, it makes sense. If you think if you were to go into any sort of game, uh, and you were to go into the game and you were to assume that the other team uh, was, you know, you, you go and you think, man, they're better than us. They've practiced more than us. They've got more skill with us. And you go in and you end up winning by 50 or 60 or 70 points. 
it will cause you to step back and question and maybe ask or think, man, we, are, we, we just miscalculated some things. We were actually greater than them. And this is what David is aiming to safeguard against because he knows this is the temptation, is to credit themselves. And so he uses the four images here to magnify the danger. And his point is to tell Israel that if it had not been for the Lord's intervention, Israel would have been undone, swallowed up, drowned, chewed up, and trapped. Let's look at the four pictures. Look at verse 3. The first picture we get, they would have what? He says, they would have swallowed us up alive. Now this imagery is the imagery of a, a large animal swallowing a smaller animal whole with such ease that it didn't even have to chew or really grab. So the imagery that he, he is giving is that they would have swallowed us up alive. They would have taken us, they would have overrun us, they would have captured us, they would have destroyed us with zero effort. And then if you look at verse 4 and 5, you see the, the second image. He moves to another picture. Uh, and this is actually a pretty normal, uh, if you read, uh, you can see it in Revelation, you can see it in the Old Testament, but it was actually a pretty normal metaphor for being overrun uh, or, or swarmed is this idea of being flooded. If, if you think of, uh, if you were somewhere and there was a flood that would come in and overrun you, um, that, that was a pretty normal analogy or metaphor to make for uh, an army that vastly outnumbered and outpowered you, that, that an army would surround you and just run over you. Uh, if you can think, if, if there was uh, Clarks Hill or Lake Thurmond or whatever people call it now, uh, if the dam at Lake Thurmond were to burst and there were people at the bottom of the dam, would those people stand any chance of survival? Does it matter how strong or how big they were? You don't stop a flood. And that's the imagery that, that, that he's given here. He, he says, this, uh, he, this picture of, of a flood or raging waters... Uh, that, David is saying that we would have been overrun. We would have been engulfed by the people who rose up against us had the Lord not been on our side. And if you look at verse 6, he changes to another picture, right? He says, the Lord has not given us as prey to their teeth. Now, this is different than the first picture, right? The first picture kind of shows a, a picture of an animal uh, just being able to swallow up whatever they were against. And the second image uh, is a picture of a larger animal that has hold of a smaller animal uh, and doesn't let go. Uh, it reminds me, a couple years ago, uh, my stepdad and my mom have some property in Stapleton, uh, which is uh, kind of out in the country towards Wrens. Uh, and a couple of years ago, they have a kind of a, uh, it's kind of a pasture, I guess, so to speak, uh, kind of a field over to the side of where the house is. Uh, and it, I mean, it's pretty big. It's probably a couple acres, but it's, you know, long and narrow. And uh, he was out cutting the grass. It had been a while since it had been cut. You have to cut it on a tractor um, because it's, it's pretty, pretty big. Uh, but he was out and he was cutting the field that had gotten a little bit overgrown. And after about an hour uh, of cutting, and I don't know if you know, if, if you've ever cut grass or a big field, uh, there's kind of a couple ways you could do it. You know, one way you could, um, well, one, two ways that I've ever done it. You can kind of go back and forth, back and forth, uh, or you can kind of make a box pattern. And that's what he was doing. He was kind of making a box and, you know, the, the remaining grass was getting less and less with uh, each pass. And after about an hour, 
uh, he looked up and he, he noticed, I mean, I don't know if you've ever noticed, but you know how the feeling is when like somebody is staring at you? You know, you, you don't have to even be looking, but you can be sitting in a room and uh, somebody can just be like looking at you and you kind of get that uncomfortable feeling and you're just like, man, it feels like somebody's looking at me. Uh, he said he had gotten that feeling. He was like riding, but I mean, it's out in the country, nobody's there. And he, he makes a pass and he looks up and there is a massive hawk perched in a tree. Over, it's uh, perched up, it's, it's overhanging the field just a little bit. And so he's driving, and you know, every time he comes by, he notices that the, the eyes of this hawk are just staying on him as he drives. And he got a little bit nervous. I mean, I, I don't think he thought, like, man, this hawk is going to take me out. Uh, but he was like, man, I don't know what this, this dude is thinking. If he's got rabies, is he going crazy? I'm a lot bigger than he is. But the hawk would not take his eyes off of him. And so he said, you know, he wasn't sure. Did he need to get a shovel or a rake or something to, like, guard him? But he was a little bit nervous because while the hawk probably couldn't, like, kill him or something, uh, it could knock him off of a tractor that was moving and pulling a, uh, a brush cutter behind it, a bush hog behind it. And, uh, but he figured, you know, whatever, uh, it's a bird, I'm going to keep on uh, riding. So he keeps on cutting the grass, and after a little while, um, you know, the, the, the whole time he's cutting, you know, the yard is, what's remaining in the tall grass is getting smaller and smaller and smaller. Uh, and he gets most of it cut, and there's probably two or three passes remaining, so a pretty small patch of grass. And he takes the tractor, and he makes the turn, and he's coming back, and he notices the hawk leaves its tree and is barreling straight for the tractor. Straight for it. I don't know, has anybody ever seen like a bird of prey? Really, I mean, you could look it up on YouTube. It is wild. He said this hawk came down full speed, wasn't slowing down, and he looked down and there was this rabbit that had run out from the grass that was there. And he said the hawk came down beelining. I mean, noise, the high-pitched noise, I won't make it because it'll be probably offensive to everyone's ears, but you know the hawk. It's coming down full speed, doesn't slow down, and just barrels, pummels into the ground. And I don't know if you've ever seen, but like their wings like turn over and they almost do a flip when they hit the ground. They are not slowing down. But without effort, he gets up and just takes off with this full-size rabbit in between his claws and, 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 and I guess they're not really jaws. I don't know what you call that, but his beak or whatever the hawks have. But he just took off. And that's, I mean, that's the image that, that David gives, right? I mean, he says, you know, the Lord has not given us as prey to their teeth. All of these images that David is showing us are images of being overmatched. With, with no chance of survival. That bunny had zero chance of survival. He had no chance. He had been running around in that grass, hiding from that hawk, who was watching him for two hours, just sitting, staring, just watching him go. And as soon as the moment happened, hawk went down and attacked, zero chance of survival. Th this is why David is magnifying this idea that there was no chance of survival. And then the fourth picture is in verse 7. If you look in verse 7, he says, We've escaped like a bird from the snare of the fowlers. We were trapped. We were snared. We can't escape. And if you look in 2 Samuel 5, you know that the Philistines, like I said, they go out, they surround the city, they have filled the valley that's out in the city, and David and his men have zero hope. In all of the pictures, 
All the pictures that David has are designed to depict the peril that the people of God are in. They're designed to depict the peril that the people of God are in by virtue, and that's, that's important, by virtue of their enemies' designs against them. All of the pictures were designed to depict the danger and the peril that the people of God were in, not just randomly, but because of the enemy's design against them. And we know, we talked about it last week, but Satan prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking to devour us. And over and over in the Bible, we see God warning us of the danger that surrounds us. In Ephesians, we mentioned it last week, but we, we see that we wrestle not with flesh and blood, but with powers and principalities and evil in the high places. But David is making it clear that our hope, our hope, our only hope, our help, the source of our aid, does not come from our own self. It's not in our craftiness. It's not in our resourcefulness. It's not in anything that belongs to us. It only belongs to God. He is our help and he is our hope. So in verses 1 and 2, David identifies the deliverer. In verses 3 to 7, he magnifies the danger that the people of God were facing. And then in verse 8, he declares to us the deliverer. In verse 8, he shows us the Lord, the one who is on our side, does not give up on us, and that he is the one who is our help. David is showing us where our ultimate hope and trust really ought to be placed. He's showing us the place where our trust and our hope is safest and most secure. He says that our confidence is to be with the Lord, that the Lord is our help. And when he says the name of the Lord, I don't know if you've, you've thought, wow, that's kind of an interesting thing. He, he's going on to say the Lord is the help, or the Lord is our help, blessed be the Lord, the Lord is our help. And then in this last line, he says, <clears throat> excuse me, our help is in the name of the Lord. And by name of the Lord, we know that he is referring to the Lord himself. But the way that it's phrased reminds us of some really significant truths. First, that the Lord is the God who has revealed himself and his name to his people. That the God that David writes about and the God that we worship, who we know is fully been revealed and manifest in Jesus Christ is not a general power or a generic deity that we just talk to and we hope. Our faith as Christians, as followers of Christ, isn't an unreasonable thing. Faith and reason are enemies. We're not talking to this general idea. When we say, hey, have faith, we're not talking about just hoping everything works out. Just general, hey, you know, well, it'll all be okay. When Christians talk about faith, when David here is calling his people to faith, he is calling them to faith for some reason that makes a whole lot of sense because there is a history of his deliverance. He is not a generic power. He's not a general deity. We're not just talking about this idea of a God, but a God who has a name and who has made his name known to his people. He has told us his name, so that when we face trouble, when we face difficulty, we can call on his name. 
Not generally, oh, God, will you help me? I need help. This is hard or challenging. He has given us our name so that we have access to him and know his name. He's made himself known. I love the, the, the idea. One of the things, uh, I can't remember if it was Derek Kidner or Calvin in their commentary on the Psalms, had this really uh, cool cool perspective on this idea of the name of the Lord. You know, the idea in the pagan society was that you would, you would have kind of this shaman or this uh, witch doctor, so to speak, who you would go to when you were in trouble, and they would help you find the right God that you needed to go to and sacrifice and, and kind of conjure or call to your aid. Or there's another scenario in which whenever you were in trouble, you would have to travel a distance to your king or to whoever it was and make your case. And I love that the, when, when he says the name of the Lord, he says, our help is in the name of the Lord. It discounts any geographical distance. Our help is not in some temple that we run to, but our help is in the name of the Lord who is accessible. We know that the name of the living God, or we know the name of the living God, the creator of heaven and earth, because he's revealed it to us. He's drawn near to us, and he said, this is my name. When you need me, call. Second thing it reminds us of is that the Lord has revealed himself to us by his word. So one, he's revealed his name to his people. Second, he's revealed himself to us by his word. He has not left us in our trouble, wandering in the dark, trying to figure out what kind of God he is or what he loves or what he hates or what his powers are or what he's able to do. But he has told us who he is. And by his word, he has revealed himself. He has revealed his name. He's revealed his nature. He's revealed his attributes, what he loves. It's all in his word to his people. So that when we need him, we know who he is and we can call on him by his name. The name of the Lord is our trust. This is what David's really getting at. But there's one more uh, thing that I want us uh, to, to see and to be able to take away. As the psalmist declares God as our savior, his name as the one in whom we find our help, we have to remember that Jesus is the God who fights for us. It's not just a picture here in the psalm. It's not just a picture of a God of an Old Testament who's you know, promised himself to this particular group of people. But we know that the New Testament itself depicts the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ to be this God. And he has invited us in to be his people. The same covenant exists with us. A greater covenant exists with us and God. Because of Jesus. So when we reach out to God for help in our time of need, and when we need him to go to battle for us, look, there's some tough stuff that we run into, and we don't really do a whole lot of talking about it. Right? I mean, but, but we face some challenging things, and, and some of the things that we face, we talked about last week, are, are of the flesh. There are tensions between like, the desires of our flesh and, and what the Holy Spirit is doing and wants for us, and so we experience this tension. And I don't know if you've ever been there to where you've been resisting sin or been trying to abide, as John writes, in Christ, but there is a tremendous amount of pain and tension that goes into that. 
or if it's the world, that we experience this, this, this tension or this challenge with the world, or the one, like I said earlier, that we don't ever really talk about is the idea that we're, we're in a, a spiritual battle, that, that we as Christians, as followers of Jesus, are at war. And so when we need help, when we're in times of need, it's Jesus who battles for us. If you will, uh, turn to First uh, John. <clears throat> Excuse me. It's not really fair. I'll give you a little bit more time because I have a bookmark in mind. Um, but turn to First uh, to John chapter three, and I want you to see what John says about Jesus. It's the second half. Uh, it's the second half of verse eight. So 1 John 3, 8, kind of that second sentence there. He is explaining that the Son of God, that Jesus has appeared for this purpose. He says, the reason the Son of God appeared. Now there are lots of reasons that John could have written here of why Jesus appeared. But it says, John writes, inspired by the Holy Spirit, that the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And if you, you know the creation, fall, redemption kind of theme, uh, you understand that whatever difficulty and trial and brokenness, whether it's of the flesh or of the world, all of those things are, are, are the work of the enemy. You can go back to Genesis and see with the fall and temptation. And you see that Jesus came not just to destroy the devil, right? He, he did, but he came to destroy the works of the devil, the effects of the devil's work. The Lord Jesus is a warrior, and he has come to destroy the works of the devil. It's not a generic God for you, or who fights for you. Right here we see it is Jesus who fights for you. When we cry out under the assault of the world and the flesh and the devil, Jesus aims to put them under his feet and he has promised that he will. Nothing will be left which opposes him. Nothing will be left of that which opposes his people. There is a face to the deliverer that the psalmist wants you to look at and trust in when you feel inundated and overrun, when you feel almost chewed up and swallowed whole, trapped, whether it be physically or emotionally or spiritually, and this face that he wants us to look at and trust in is the face of our Savior Jesus. So often uh, we, we look elsewhere, and just in very practical terms, right? If, if we think about like, how, you know, let's, let's talk about like community, right? We talk a lot about gospel and community and mission. Like we long for community. We want fellowship with believers. And we'll do everything we can to strategize and come up with our own plans and ideas of how we'll achieve that. The same thing with mission. I'm the first. When, when I think of, okay, we, gotta, we wanna go be on mission. We wanna share the gospel with people. My first idea is to trust in myself and to come up with any sort of plan or scheme or strategy to get whatever I need to get done. What does that reveal about where my trust really lies? So, I'm, so often, and, and, and I'll be the first to tell you, it is one of the biggest struggles is to, we 
believe kind of uh, the, at least where we are now in America, the, the idea that we need ourselves and that we can save ourselves and that we're sufficient to solve our problems. But that is not what the gospel presents. We are so tempted to look elsewhere. We exhaust all of our resources, all of our energy. And we become filled with fear and anxiety and worry. And it ultimately is revealing of a distrust. We need this psalm. We need to be reminded of a faithful God who rescues us and who delivers us who comes in his blood-stained garments from battles with his foes and our foes. And he comes victorious. David is telling us these things because the Christian life is a fight. It's a constant warfare, and the battle doesn't belong to us. The, the battle belongs to the Lord. He has called us his own. We belong to him. Our help, as David writes, is in the name of the Lord, the name of the Lord who made heaven and who made earth. If you'll pray with me. Lord, we are so quick to hide and to cover up uh, what's inside, the pain that we deal with, the, the, the emotional, the physical challenges that we have, uh, the dilemmas that we face. We, we go to ourselves, we run to ourselves, uh, and ultimately we confess that we have made so much effort in our flesh and we have come up shy. We need you, Jesus. We need you to deliver us. This is our plea. This is our cry. To deliver us and to lead us. We want you as our king. Lord, as we go through this week, I pray that you would bring back to memory and bring back to our mind uh, ways that you have been faithful, ways that we have credited to happenstance or chance or circumstance or our own self Lord, would you show us how it's been you? Will you show us and reveal to us and increase our gratitude? Lord, we as a church aim to be a people that glorify you, that see your name go forth. And we want to be a people, Lord, who are not people who are marked by fear and worry and anxiety, but joy and peace and hope. Lord, we pray that we would be a people of hope to our cities, to our families, to our neighborhoods. Lord, we just bring ourselves uh, under you. We submit ourselves willfully uh, under you. And where we're unwilling, Lord, we thank you that your spirit finishes the work that it began. Have your way. Amen. So we're going to move into a time of response uh, like we do each week at Redemption. Uh, the band's going to come up and lead us in worship, and you have the opportunity to come and partake uh, in communion. Um, we, we, what we do each week is we come up through the center aisle and we tear off the bread and we dip it in the wine or we dip it in the juice and it represents the body of Christ that's been broken for us and the blood of Christ that's been shed for us. Uh, if you come and you partake in communion, you, you don't have to be a member, but what we do ask is that you do believe that Jesus is who he says he is and that he's done what he said he would do. We don't want you to come up and to say something that you don't believe. Uh, and so we would ask if you do not believe and trust in Christ for salvation, that you would hang out where you are and reflect on uh, the scripture uh, from this week. Um, there are some other ways 
there's a giving basket in the back where, uh, if you're a member at Redemption, uh, it's a way to participate uh, and uh, to really, uh, it's a way to, to trust the Lord uh, with, uh, with, with your finances and it's a way to worship. Um, so uh, there will be people uh, in the back as well if anybody would like to pray or spend some time praying or pray with someone. Uh, somebody will be in the back or you could grab somebody um, and they'd be glad to, to pray with you. Uh, we do have, uh, we, we have the joy of celebrating two baptisms uh, this Sunday. And so uh, as a part of the service, it's not following the service, so we'd ask that everybody would uh, come and uh, participate. Uh, but out in the lobby, we'll be having uh, two baptisms. So once you've uh, taken communion, if you have children, uh, it's a, it would be a great idea and a great uh, testament uh, to go get them and to bring them out and to see um, see the evidence of, of, of young folks trusting uh, and placing their faith and trust in, in Jesus as we celebrate it uh, through uh, baptism. So I'm going to pray one more time. Uh, band's going to come up. Uh, lead us in worship. Remember, if you have kids... It's a, it's a good time to uh, go get them. Um, and uh, Reggie will be up afterwards and we'll give you some uh, direction about the baptism. So pray with me. Lord, we pray that, um, that our taking communion wouldn't become rote. It wouldn't become something that we just do to do. But as we take, we would truly remember. We would remember that even if we can't recall specific ways that you have delivered us, Lord, we know that you have delivered us from the domain of darkness, and you have rescued us and given us salvation. And so as we take communion, I pray that it would be uh, powerful and real, and your spirit would remind us uh, of that truth. Uh, Lord, we just pray um, again that this would, uh, baptism would just be a time of celebration, encouragement, uh, and testimony. Jesus, we pray uh, all of these things in your name. Amen.